We have that short reading from Mark's Gospel, but of course we're following a series in Acts. So if you could turn with me to Acts chapter 27, you'll find that on page 1124, using the Bible there in the pew. Acts 27, page 1124. I hope most of you, if not all of you, will also have got a copy of a a map. I tried earlier in this series to stick a few maps on the PowerPoint, but it doesn't really work. The detail's too small, and it's not really legible. So this is a a map that'll help you. For those of you whose geography of the Mediterranean isn't quite what it should be, that'll keep you right. Some of you won't need it at all and you may just discard it because you'll know uh, all these places already. Let's pray together. Father God, we have recognized that our lives are a journey. From the day we're born until the day we die, we move in certain directions. Lord, we want to move in your will and in your ways. We know that your word is a light to our path. That as we pay attention to what you say to us and what you would speak to us, then we see clearly the way before us. Lord, come and speak to us by your word just now this evening. Amen. We live in an age of unprecedented travel. Um, I'm very conscious of that. Just before the service, actually, I was sitting beside Jill, and she was telling me that Mike was in uh, France yesterday, and she wasn't entirely sure where he is today. That is the modern world. We can travel uh, from one country to another just like that to the other side of the world in the space of a few hours. No part of the world is beyond us. And yet, even though travel has become so convenient and so easy for us, it is dangerous. Aeroplanes fall from the skies, trains are derailed, ferries sink and cars collide. So the only way to avoid the danger of travel is is by not traveling at all. I can remember one journey that I was on that became quite a a major event uh, and ended up somewhat dangerous. It was December of 1998, and I was flying home from Vancouver to Belfast and then on to to Bangor to to see Claire and to get married. It was about 10 days before our wedding. Now, I'd done a a slightly sneaky thing. I'd arranged for Claire to come and pick me up from the airport, but in the meantime, I'd booked the whole thing one day earlier so that I could come and surprise her at home. So I, I thought I was the boy as I'd finished my last exam, heading off to the airport, home to surprise my fiancé and and to go and get married. Well, it didn't all work out just like that. Not long after the flight took off, um, an announcement came over from the captain asking if there were any medical staff on board, any medical people. And you know yourself, if you've heard that, it it means somebody on on the plane's not doing as well as they might. Well, it turned out there was a guy who was seriously ill. We'd been flying for a few hours at the stage Um, Because of this man's illness, we had to turn around and fly to Winnipeg, which is right in the middle of Canada. Because we had flown and we still had such a long stretch of a transatlantic flight ahead of us, we had to refuel. So between caring for this man and refueling, I think we we ended up 
five hours behind schedule. So we took off five hours later, uh, having just completed a tiny part of our journey. So we knew we were well behind. So then we flew on, and everything seemed to be going well until we got to just over Britain. I don't know if you've seen uh, those transatlantic flights or or any long-distance flight. You know the little screen with the dot that travels across to tell you how far you are? Well, the dot was just coming over Britain, and I knew, goodness, less than an hour, and we'll touch down in Heathrow, and it's all nearly over. Another announcement came over. This is your captain speaking. Um, I have some bad news. Because of regulations, I am out of flying time. He wasn't allowed to fly the length of time that it would take him to get down to Heathrow. He was over by half an hour or something. So he said, listen, we'll, we'll touch down here in Glasgow. We'll fly a crew up from London to come and pick you. So, but it was this, this palaver. The journey was going on and on. I eventually touched down in Heathrow 10 hours later than scheduled. So all my, all my notion of surprising Claire was gone. It was so late, there was no more flight to Belfast that day. I ended up lying in one of those hotel, airport hotels, getting up the next morning and actually going home to meet Claire at exactly the time we'd arranged. A whole 24 hours late. But there was a moment on that journey that I want to, to share with you. In amongst all the, the general palaver and the long delay, our landing in Glasgow... I'd become quite used to turbulence because sometimes on the transatlantic flights you do get a a bumpier flight here and there. But something happened between the pilot telling us that we were going to land in Glasgow and actually landing. There was a moment where the, the airplane began to drop by just hundreds of feet, it felt like. And, and it's one of those moments where you look around at the people around you for a cue to see how they're responding. And people all over the plane had started to scream. I can distinctly remember, I'd been sharing, the, the, I'd been sitting beside a, a lady, she, she was Islamic, and she was screaming to Allah to save her. It's one of those moments in my life that I'll never forget. It was one of those moments where I, I just wasn't sure that I was going to come out of that plane alive. It was a sobering moment in my life on a dangerous journey. Acts chapter 27 tells of a dangerous journey that Paul's on. And we're going to read it together just now. I'm going to deal with the Bible passage a little bit differently this evening. And I'm going to read it in chunks with you. And we'll just talk about bits as we go. It's really really another one of these long stories in Acts. It's not very theologically dense. But I think by the time we've read this story, we'll, we'll see clearly... Uh, what God's been doing in Paul's life at this stage. So Acts 27. Feel free, by the way, if you want to just listen to the story and have your Bible beside you to refer to it, uh, feel free just to listen as well. You don't have to, to follow it if you don't wish. Acts 27, beginning at verse 1 there. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. We boarded a ship from Adramatim, about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was also with us. The next day we landed at Sidon, 
And Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so that they might provide for his needs. From there, we put out to sea again and passed to the Lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. When we had sailed across the open sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. We made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off Nidus. When the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the lee of Crete opposite Salmone. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens near the town of Lassia. Much time had been lost and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the fast. So Paul warned them, men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and the owner of the ship. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbor in Crete, facing both southwest and northwest. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they thought that they had obtained what they wanted, so they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind, so we gave way to it and were driven along. As we passed to the lee of a small island called Cauda, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. When the men had hoisted it aboard, they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together, fearing that they had run about aground on the sandbars of Sirtis. They lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. Luke seems to be traveling with Paul on this part of the journey. We've pointed that out once or twice. Luke is, as you know, the writer, but once in a while he speaks in the first person letting us know that he is part of Paul's uh, group of companions at this point. So if you notice there in verse 1, it was decided that we should sail for Italy. We boarded a ship from Adramitium. Verse 3, the next day we landed at Sidon. So Paul's traveling. He's going to Rome, but he's not on his own. He's traveling again with friends. Uh, His gospel partners are traveling with him. After he leaves Caesarea on one ship, we're told in verse 6 that he and his companions boarded an Alexandrian ship. Alexandria is a large port of the time, huge port in northern Egypt. So this is a ship that's making the, the return journey back and forward from Egypt up to Italy. Egypt was the breadbasket of the Roman Empire. It's where the, the grain and the wheat came from, and it went northwards then to Italy. 
So there's a, a lovely thing going on here where the, the economy of the empire, this ship full of, of grain, full of sailors and soldiers, becomes a vehicle for the gospel to go right into the heart of the Roman Empire. I always think it's, it's wonderful to see how, how God uses uh, very ordinary uh, moments and very ordinary parts of the culture to bring the gospel forward. Whenever Luke describes what happens on board this ship, it's, it's very, very vivid and very detailed. You can tell there's an eyewitness involved. No, no other way could you get this level of detail in the record. I thought as I read it, I thought, well, a couple of things. I thought, nightmare, I'm going to have to preach on this. <laughs> and I also thought it sounded a little bit like, I don't know if they still do it. Do you remember they used to give out on the radio the shipping forecast? Uh, it would sort of be the sort of thing that would go on after the news at midnight. And I actually quite enjoyed the shipping forecast because you heard about all sorts of wild weather in all sorts of wild places. Like, I looked some of them up. Viker, Viking and Dogger, Biscay and Fastnet. Uh, I don't know. It maybe gives an insight into my state of mind during the week. But I looked up uh, a shipping cor- forecast for Malin while I was preparing my sermon. So on Wednesday, the 11th of February... The wind on Malin was easterly or southeasterly, veering southerly four or five, whatever that means. The sea was rough. Wintry showers and then rain, and the visibility was moderate or good. So we're into the world of of storms and high winds and, and danger, really. We don't need to be expert meteorologists or even expert sailors to get the gist of Luke's shipping report. Look at verse 4. The winds were against us. Verse 7. We made slow headway for many days and had difficulty. The wind didn't allow us to hold our course. We sailed to the lee of Crete. We moved along the coast with difficulty. And then he tells us in verse 9 that much time had been lost and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the fast. He's talking about a very specific uh, benchmark in in the sailing year. The fast he's talking about is the Day of Atonement. In this year, AD 59, it fell on the 5th of October. And the idea was basically that nobody in their right mind spent time in the open sea after the day of the fast. Well into the dangerous season for sea travel. So we're told then in verse 11 that the centurion declines Paul's advice and he decides that they should sail along the southern coast of Crete uh, to find a better harbor uh, for the winter. And it's at that point that we're told in verse 14 that a wind of hurricane force, the northeaster, swept down from the island and it becomes a desperate situation. It's so bad that people on the boat are are despairing of their lives. Again, if you recognize that that Luke is in the first person here, I think he's admitting that he was despairing too. He says in verse 20, We finally gave up all hope of being saved. It's quite a moment in the Acts narrative. Paul's come through an awful lot of danger so far. But God has protected him from the persecuting and dangerous Jews. Time and time again we've seen that. 
we've seen how he, he's known some safety uh, under the protection of, of Roman leaders here and there, the political superpower of the time. And the question now is, when he's been protected from the Jews, when he's known the protection of Rome, is Paul now finally going to be undone on an Alexandrian ship on the Mediterranean Ocean? Paul doesn't think so. Not for a moment. Look at verses 21 to 25. After the men had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night an angel of God, whose I am, And whom I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men. For I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. I don't know about you, but I don't think most of us ever enjoy somebody who's, who comes at us with an I told you so. But that's what Paul does here. Uh, the classic I told you so. Men, you should have listened to me. You should never have left Crete. But then Paul does a wonderful and pastoral thing. He speaks to these sailors whose courage has failed them. And he says, keep up your courage. Don't give up hope. He tells those who are afraid about his God, who's come alongside him and told him not to be afraid. It's all right, fellas. This ship will not go down with you on board. God has told me, and I believe him. God told Paul that every single person in the ship was safe. God said it, and Paul believed it. Folks, I think this is quite remarkable. Paul really seems to believe that he's safe in this ship, flapping around in the middle of the Mediterranean. Remember, there have been days chased across the Mediterranean by a storm, a near hurricane. And yet Paul trusts God. You see, I think Paul is somebody who who believed that he could trust God. Paul was steeped in the Old Testament. He believed that, that God was not only the creator, but that God was one who continued to rule over his created world. He believed verses like this from Psalm 89 the psalm which Gareth was reading from just a moment ago, you rule over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, you still them. Paul believed that God could protect him. I think he also believed that God would protect. You see, he'd heard stories of Jesus, one like the one that we read earlier, where Jesus with his disciples Hardened fishermen who are terrified on Lake Galilee. When they thought they were going to drown, when they thought their hope was up, Jesus simply calms the storm 
And they asks him, why are you so afraid? Folks, it all seems very simple whenever it's spelled out like this on the pages of Scripture for us. When we see Jesus calming a storm, when we see Paul trusting our God is the creator, he's the maker of heaven and earth, his spirit is with us and walks with us through this life, why would we ever be afraid? And yet we are. We're afraid of many things. We're afraid of danger, the kind that Paul experienced. We're afraid of failure, afraid that we won't be able to do the things that we want to do or that we think other people are expecting of us. We're afraid of illness. We're afraid of death. We're afraid because we haven't yet grasped these things that Paul has grasped. We haven't yet fully understood that God loves us. That our lives are truly in his hands. That he wants the best for us. And so we're afraid. We haven't yet learned to trust God. Paul is trusting God in the midst of this storm. And he's not out of danger yet. This grand speech of his to the crew, it's going to seem like nothing. It's going to seem like just a hollow gesture unless God delivers on his promise, unless Paul's word is proved to be faithful and true. Let's read on. Verse 27. On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea when about midnight the sailors sensed that they were approaching land. They took soundings and they found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and they found that it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that we'd be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending that they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it fall away. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you've been in constant suspense and you've gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he had said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and he began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. 
When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchor, they let them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. They hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach, but the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bar stuck fast and would not move, and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping, but the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or on pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached land in safety. God has been true to his promise to Paul. Paul has been found to be true to his word. And every single one, 276 people, have come safely ashore from the boat. Not before they'd come through another couple of major dangers, though. This ship has run aground and it's being hammered by a huge surf. And that's an extremely dangerous scenario. Then we read in verse 42 that even when they have survived the sea and when they have survived the shipwreck, in verse 42, the soldiers plan to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. It sounds like a really cruel idea, but actually it makes a whole lot of sense. In Roman law, if you're a soldier with a prisoner under your care, if they escape, the sentence of that prisoner falls on you. So if you have a prisoner on board a ship who has the death sentence hanging over them, if that guy escapes, you're dead. So really, uh, you can see here that these, these prisoners on board this ship are, are in a very serious place. They have survived the danger of the sea. Paul's come through an actual shipwreck, but now his life still hangs in the balance because of these Roman soldiers. And it's not for the first time, not for the first time in this journey or not for the first time in the book of Acts that God uses a pagan, this, this Roman commander, Julius, this centurion, to save Paul's life and to ensure that he gets safely ashore. We're going to look at one last incident this evening recorded for us in the opening verses of chapter 28. Once safely ashore, we found out that the island was called Malta. The islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood and as he put it in fire, a viper driven out by the heat fastened itself in his hand. When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, this man must be a murderer. Though he's escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. But Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. The people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead. But after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and they said that he was a god. 
There was an estate nearby that belonged to Publius, the chief official of the island. He welcomed us to his home and for three days entertained us hospitably. His father was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went in to see him and after prayer placed his hands on him and healed him. When this had happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and were cured. They honored us in many ways. And when we were ready to sail, they furnished us with the supplies we needed. Paul survives the the violence of the sea. He survives a shipwreck. He survives soldiers about to take his life. And now, finally, he faces a snake. Luke's account here is very detailed. Again, it has that ring of an eyewitness account. It's, it's wonderful to see how fickle the crowd are here. First of all, they see him with a snake on him and they think, oh yeah, he must be a murderer. He's escaped and justice is pursuing him. And then when, when he shakes the snake off and suffers no ill effects, then they're saying, no, no, he's not a murderer. He's a god. And it's a, a wonderful uh, insight into human nature, I think. We love to cast everyone in the role of either villain or hero. But here in the biblical narrative, we see that Paul's neither a murderer, nor is he a god, but he's simply a faithful servant of the true and living God. He's in good hands. God has saved him now over and over and over again. God still has work for Paul to do. Next week, we're going to come to the end of this long journey through Acts, and we're going to discover that Paul does make it finally to Rome. God kept his promise. As far as we know, one day Paul did appear before Caesar. I began this evening by telling you about a journey that I made in December of 1998 from Vancouver to London. And I told you about a short period of time when I genuinely wasn't sure whether I'd step off that plane alive. It was a sobering moment. I can still remember a little of what went through my mind as we were dropping hundreds of feet in the sky somewhere approaching Glasgow. At a moment like that, time seems to stand still and you find that you're able to think different things all at the same time. I can remember the fear I felt. I'd be lying if I said I wasn't fearful. I can remember a a deep pang of sorrow, uh, of wondering what in my life wasn't going to be, Uh, particularly, of course, thinking uh, that that I may not be married as as I was uh, traveling home to be. I can remember fear And I can remember sorrow. But I can remember as well something that really surprised me. A deep and unexpected sense of calm. 
something that I hadn't anticipated, wouldn't, wouldn't have expected to come over me at a time like that. And perhaps it was a little bit like what Paul experienced on that ship in the Mediterranean when all around were despairing. And he had this sense of the presence of God and God saying, do not be afraid. I didn't have a specific promise like the one that Paul had. He had a promise specific that he was going to go to Rome, that God still had work for him to do. I didn't have that promise or, or anything like it. I had no promise that one day in, a, in the years in the future I'd be the minister in Kirkpatrick Memorial Presbytery. I didn't have any of that. I didn't know what lay ahead. But I did have this sense that God was with me. I had this sense that I live my life in the hands of a loving Heavenly Father. That my life on this earth will not end until He determines that it will end. That my calling home, whenever and in whatever way that happens, will happen because my work is done. Because the stuff that he wanted me to do, I have done. Because it's finished for me. Folks, that's what I, in a small way, I think, was believing on that flight in December of 1998. A very unexpected sense of calm that no matter what life throws at me, If God is in it and he's with me, then that's okay. In the letter to his friends in Philippi, Paul put it like this. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. When he wrote to another bunch of churches in the the Roman province of Galatia. He said to them, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. Christ lives in me. In Paul's mind, he was a dead man walking. His life, the life that he had known before Christ was over. He was now living this new life. This life that Christ gave him. Paul had given over to God the right to determine whether he should live or whether he should die. Whether he had more work to do or whether he hadn't. He belonged to Christ.
Friends, I think this is what Christian living is all about. Learning to trust God. Learning to say that the life that he brings us is the one that we rejoice in and and accept because it's a gift from his hand. Not to cling to our own dreams and desires and passions any longer, but to see them all caught up in life in the kingdom of God. I wonder whether I'm learning this kind of trust. I wonder whether I'm learning to die to my life that is not the life of Christ. I wonder if I'm learning to hand over all my hopes and my dreams to him. That's how it was for Paul. He had given himself entirely over to God. God kept him from the seas and from a shipwreck, from soldiers and from a snake. God kept him because God still had work for him to do. And the sense you get from Paul is that he he just rested in God. You know how Paul's story ends, don't you? And for these other New Testament apostles, many of them were martyred. This life of trusting in God didn't guarantee them an easy or a, or, a, or a comfortable life. But they resigned themselves to God and threw themselves on him. But Paul, I know how Paul's life ended because God's word tells us how it ends for all those who throw themselves on him. They are welcomed finally into his presence where Christ himself stands before them and he welcomes them and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done, good and faithful servant. What else can we cling to? What else would we put before that? Hearing Jesus speak those words to us. Let us pray.